Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is August 16th, 2023. We are in the second half of August. And of course, this is the week that the fourth indictment against Donald Trump dropped. And I think people are still getting their heads around the fact that uh, the insanity, the lies, the conspiracy to overthrow an American presidential election is going to be front and center in the 2024 election. There's no indication the Republican Party has decided that it is. Uh, this is the moment to move on from uh, the twice impeached, uh, disgraced, defeated, and now four-time indicted former president. So uh, if you subscribe to Morning Shots, we have a pretty complete rundown of many of the reads that I think that you might find helpful of Vox uh, asking, is Trump going to jail? And they provide a list of all the criminal charges and the potential prison time, ranking the indictments in order of importance. Uh, The Washington Post, why Trump might fear the Georgia indictment the most. Well, why? Prison, no pardons, RICO, mugshots, bail restrictions, television. What the heck happened in Coffee County, Georgia? Anna Bauer from Lawfare has an account of this weird uh, sort of Keystone Cops effort to uh, tamper with the voting machines, uh, to access the voting machines. And of course, here's a reminder that we're going to be talking about Ukraine today. We're going to be talking about the war. But tomorrow, we are going to have another episode of the Trump trials, which will be a deep dive into all of all of this. In the bulwark, Will Salatan has a piece of what's actually new in the Georgia indictment. We have Phil Rotner, the beating heart of the Georgia indictment, which is the fake elector scheme that was not really a contingency plan. It was an action plan. The New York Times looks at the whole question of how far is Trump going to go in bullying, intimidating, and baiting the judges. Biased, corrupt, deranged, Trump's taunts test limits of release. A lot of lawyers are saying that if Trump was anybody else, just an ordinary you know, American citizen issuing those attacks, he'd be in jail by now. The Daily Mail chronicling Trump's disaster diary for 2024, the former president will have to fit in his many criminal trials amid a very busy campaign schedule. The Wall Street Journal has a piece on one of the, I don't want to use the words like tragic, but there is something, there's something like a Greek tragedy that Rudy Giuliani, who built his entire career using RICO, gets indicted on the law that he made famous. Also, interesting phenomenon, while Republicans all across the country continue to lose their minds over all of this, uh, the Republican Party in Georgia is different. I mean, let's be honest about it. I mean, the Georgia Georgia's Republican governor, Brian Kemp, is hitting back against Trump's lies. Trump is saying that he's going to have this big press conference where he's going to make these big reveals about stealing the Georgia election. Brian Kemp just slam dunked him. He put out a tweet yesterday. The 2020 election in Georgia was not stolen for nearly three years now. Anyone, anyone with evidence of fraud has failed to come forward under oath and prove anything in a court of law. Our elections in Georgia are secure, accessible and fair and will continue to be as long as I am the governor. You're having you know, another moment among the anti-anti-Trump folks who are, I think, realizing that their effort to prop up Ron DeSantis might not be working. So there's a sense of kind of urgency slash panic. You have a baseball crank writing in the New York Post. uh, People, it's time for the Republicans to move on from Donald Trump. If only they'd been warned. Noah Rothman in the National Review. It is time for Republicans to come to terms with Trump's legal peril. Uh, The former Republican lieutenant governor in Georgia, Jeff Duncan, has a piece in the Washington Post where he says the Georgia indictment should be a turning point. Whether it will be, we just don't know. Also, 
I think that as we sort of brace for what the next year and a half is going to be, and it's going to be rough, I think this is part of the challenge of, of going through this, uh, th- this next year and a half where if you think our politics have been insane up until now, it's nothing compared to what we are going to be having, including, you know, the, again, the, the lies, the conspiracy theories, the threat of violence, and of course, this festival of hypocrisy. And I go through some of the things that have been happening just in the last several days, you know, the Republicans who demanded, demanded, demanded that uh, the attorney general name, name a special counsel in the Hunter Biden case. That they, in fact, they wrote a letter saying Merrick Garland must appoint David Weiss to serve as special counsel. Last Friday, Merrick Garland appoints David Weiss to serve as special counsel. The exact same Republicans who demanded it are now attacking it. So it's like that was then and this is now. I also, again, in, in Morning Shots, kind of highlight what's going on with folks like the boy philosopher of the right, Ben Shapiro, who, uh, like so many other members of the right wing ecosystem, are saying how terrible it is that that the criminal justice system has been weaponized against the uh, felonious cult leader. And he tweeted out, whatever you think of the Trump indictments, one thing is for certain the glass has now been broken over and over again. Political opponents can be targeted by legal enemies. Oh, really? See, that turns out to be really awkward because Ben Shapiro had actually written a whole book calling for the criminal prosecution of Barack Obama. I mean, there was nothing subtle about it. The title of the book is The People versus Barack Obama, The Criminal Case Against the Obama Administration. And guess what statute Ben Shapiro wanted to use to go after his political opponent back then, back in 2014? I make the case, he told Larry King, that the RICO Act, Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organization Act, should be used to go after Barack Obama. So once again, shamelessness being not just a superpower, but apparently a way of life. So we are going to spend a lot more time tomorrow and Friday going back over all of this. But I thought today would be a good day to take a deep breath and step back and and look around at the real world. Because while this is going on, as America devours itself politically, culturally, legally, there are real issues in the world. There are bears in the forest. There are people who are fighting for their freedom and for their independence. And for them, it is a matter of life and death. So today we are going to be joined by the author of one of the most important new books about Ukraine. Christopher Miller is correspondent for the Financial Times based in Ukraine. He has been reporting on that country for more than a decade, and he is the author of the new book, The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. I usually don't do this. I usually don't read uh, the blurbs that the publishers put on the back of the book, but this one I wanted to share. When I want to know what is happening in Ukraine, I turn first to Christopher Miller's reporting. Whether it is the latest information from the front lines of Russia's war against Ukraine, insightful analysis of the political maneuverings in Kyiv, or understanding into what the average Ukrainian is thinking about current events, Miller always has the inside track. Now, in his riveting book, The War Came to Us, this foremost expert on the region takes us back over the last 12 years, providing the history, the culture, and the context to help us understand where Ukraine is today and what might come next, a must-read for those who want to get beyond the headlines. And that is Marie Ivanovich, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and authors of Lesson from the Edge. I think you'd remember that. So that is a damn, damn impressive blurb. Christopher, welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. Thank you for having me on. It's great to be here. Let's start with the big question. 
because your book deals with so much. And I want to get into the the political culture, the issues of corruption, oligarchy, the state of the war. But let's start with this sort of meta question. Why does Ukraine matter? Why are we talking about Ukraine? Yeah, I think that's a really important question and a good one to start with. You know, there is a lot of, I, I think, questioning why this this war should be paid attention to by us in the West, in particular the United States. And I think it's important to understand that this is a, a huge country. It's the size of the U.S. state of Texas. It plays a large role in that of global security, European security. It is the largest country within the continent of Europe. It is a place that is fighting for principles on which our country was founded and, and which those of us here in the United States, I'm, I'm currently taking some time off here, we care very much about independence and freedom. And, and that is what Ukrainians are fighting for. For them, it's an existential fight. It's obviously one of, of survival. But for us in the, in the United States and, and in the Western world, you know, this is important for us to essentially put our, our money and our support where our mouth is. We say that we want to defend democracies around the world. Ukraine is a burgeoning democracy. It has a population of 40 million people who very much want to be more than ever before, largely thanks to Vladimir Putin and his plans for Ukraine largely backfiring, uh, wants to be a part of the European Union. It's, a, again, a burgeoning democracy, and I think that's something that we should care about. And, and more so, just to take it even a step further, I think if you know, if, if Vladimir Putin and, and Russia is not stopped in Ukraine, there is a great concern that Russia could try to take a few steps further into Europe and possibly attack in other uh, various ways, the European Union, and certainly continue to try to undermine our system of democracy here in the United States. I'm always struck uh, to be reminded that Ukraine is the largest European country fully within the borders of Europe that is the size of the state of Texas. It's not just some random small country. Yeah, that's right. So there is a narrative out there. And again, you know, as, as Americans are learning and dividing over the question of Ukraine, there is the whole question of, well, what about the oligarchs? What about uh, the corruption? And, and you know that there is that narrative out there, you know, that the billions of dollars that we're sending uh, to Ukraine are going to the oligarchs and corrupt businessmen. And there's a long tradition of corruption hanging over Ukraine. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but that's one of the questions that comes up. But what do we not know about Ukraine? And is it really the pristine democracy that it's portrayed as being? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and certainly one that is on everybody's mind right now as the U.S. debates, you know, how much mm -hmm. to continue supporting Ukraine. You know, the interesting thing about this war is that these powerful tycoons and oligarchs have largely been sidelined. Many of them, for example, uh, Rina Akhmetov, who was at times viewed as a, a pro-Russian businessman, he was responsible for the rise of Viktor Yanukovych, the pro-Russian president that was ousted in 2014 and fled to, to Russia. Mm -hmm. You know, he's become much more of a, a pro-Ukrainian businessman. He's lost a lot of uh, his, his assets and wealth over the course of the last year and a half. So any, you know, Russian sympathies uh, or, or business ties have largely been cut off. Hmm. And now, you know, he's, he's very much on the side of Ukraine winning this war. And he's invested uh, millions and millions of dollars in, in the defense of Ukraine, in the reconstruction of the company. 
And so I think that's worth noting. And there's still plenty of reasons to to criticize him and certainly, you know, his, his past and, and other oligarchs. Mm-hmm. But broadly speaking, many of these oligarchs have actually lost influence in the last year and a half. And we've seen the rise of new, younger, very uh, democratic-minded individuals and businessmen who are now wielding a lot more influence in Ukrainian society. And President Zelensky himself, and, and also the people working within his administration, as well as the Ukrainian parliament, continues, even in wartime, to, to pass and implement reforms aimed at stamping out deeply entrenched corruption in the country. And there are some very, very active Ukrainian activists who continue, despite the war, to go after uh, corrupt entities within the country. They're lobbying support in Washington and other Western capitals for assistance in trying to, uh, again, stamp out this corruption. So there's this parallel fight that's happening. While soldiers are fighting and dying, um, trying to defend the country on the front line, there is this ongoing anti-corruption fight in Kiev and across the country. And we saw some sweeping actions taken by Zelensky last week to dismiss all of the heads of the military recruitment centers who had been taking bribes from young men who wanted to flee the country so they wouldn't be mobilized. Let's talk about President Zelensky, because this is one of the most fantastically bizarre stories in, in European political history. A guy who is a TV uh, star, is a comedian who uh, actually stars in a television show about being elected president and then goes on and is elected president. You know, you've watched him. You've watched him go from being a showbiz star to being a politician to being kind of a Churchillian figure. So tell me about Vladimir Zelensky, his strengths and his weaknesses. Well, he has this uncanny ability to connect with people. And we we saw that even before he became president. But I think that's certainly one of the things that has had great appeal and made him as popular as he is today. You know, as a as a comic actor, he was widely popular, you know, he was recognized all over the country. You know, interestingly, he was he was never really involved politically in the country. And even in 2013 and 2014, during the Revolution of Dignity, um, which had been known at the time as, as the Euromaidan, he sort of sat and watched mm-hmm. from uh, Krivirig and, and Kiev, where he split his time, and didn't really, you know, actively participate in that, nor did he really actively participate in a lot of the support for the defense of the country after Russia's first invasion in 2014. He was very much a businessman. He remained focused on that, his entertainment group, his widely popular television show where he became president. But it was that show that actually... I think helped people certainly to to think, you know what, this this extremely charismatic guy, while being a comedian, is really onto something here. In this television show, he becomes president after a student of his, he plays a, a history teacher, just sort of an everyman history teacher who's very mm-hmm. likable and mm-hmm. and goes on this rant about how, you know, entrenched corruption in the country is is destroying Ukraine. And this video goes viral and the oligarchs who are trying to find uh, a new person to sort of mold and shape as their own and put in power, rig the election to make him president. And he doesn't realize this at the moment. And it looks like a popular election. He had, he's won democratically and he gets into office and he, he, he defies these oligarchs by doing, uh, you know, essentially what he said he would do on this viral video. 
by stamping out corruption and, and attacking these oligarchs. And let's just remind people, we're, we're talking about the TV show. We're talking about the show. Right, right. <laughs> and, and so, you know, the funny thing is, this is, it was so surreal. <laughs> you know, he was, this was a TV show called Servant of the People. And so Amazing. he became so wild, wildly popular that when he launched his presidential campaign, he named his political party after the television show Servant of the People. <laughs> and the, the theme music for the television show was also that of his campaign. And so when I saw him for the first uh, couple of times campaigning in, in, in early 2019, there was this weird moment where he, he stepped into the room to the music played by his television show. And you weren't really sure if you were seeing uh, Vasily Goloborodka, the, the TV president, or Volodymyr Zelensky. And speaking with his, his campaign staff, you know, they were like, this is what we want. We want people to feel like, you know, this is, it's the same, it's the same man. So what did you think of this? Did you take it seriously back then? It was hard to take it seriously at first because, yeah. you know, he, he, he had no political experience. Uh-huh. This was a country where it really had an old guard political class that still was very influential. And it was a country at war. And so there was this big question hanging over him, you know, whether he could be a good commander in chief. And at the time, President uh, Petro Poroshenko had had managed the country mm-hmm. for several years in wartime. He had strong relationships with Western leaders, but Ukrainians who really, really like change and have only once ever in their independent history since the collapse of the Soviet Union re-elected a president saw Zelensky as an opportunity to move in a different direction. He was, uh, you know, certainly campaigning on populist messages, and and people were were fed up with the sort of militaristic nationalism that had emerged in the latter part of the Poroshenko administration. And Zelensky actually campaigned uh, on the issue of of finding a solution to the war, to Russia's war against the country. And so they felt as though, you know, what this is an opportunity, perhaps, to maybe find uh, an end to this uh, war that at that point had been, you know, going on for uh, more than five years um, after he was elected. Mm-hmm. And so he became this president. He was widely popular. He, he earned uh, more than 70% of the vote in the presidential election. Mm-hmm. But in Ukraine, as, as often is the case, you know, his star faded over time when he couldn't produce many of the results that he had promised on the campaign trail, the biggest of which was finding an end to this war. So then we get to February 2022. And of course, You know, he makes what I think and many Ukrainians believe is the most important decision of his political career. And and that was to stay in Kiev. And he filmed this video where he says, Yatud, I'm here. I'm with my staff. We're not fleeing. The Russians can try what they want. We're going to defend our country. Extraordinary moment. It was. But going back a little bit earlier, he didn't really believe that there was going to be an invasion. He had intelligence services, including the United States, telling him, you know, um, the Russians are going to invade. And they didn't believe it, right? I mean, your, your sources were saying that the, the administration thought that there might be a, an attack, not an invasion. It would just be limited to southeastern Ukraine. And Zelensky was actually complaining about these warnings about it. So he, he didn't get that right beforehand. Yes and no. You know, he was, they, they were wrong in the sense that You know, they didn't believe that the types of Russian forces that were surrounding Hmm. Ukraine's border and the number of those forces were enough and the right ones to be successful in launching the the blitzkrieg on Kiev that the Russians would eventually launch an attempt, right? Essentially, he, he interpreted their own intelligence in Ukraine and Western intelligence differently. They believed that an attack would be on a large scale, but it would be focused on the east and the south. Russia would want to try to take the southern regions of Kherson, the rest of Donetsk Oblast and Zaporizhia Oblast, 
these regions in the south that border uh, Ukrainian Crimea, which Russia has occupied since 2014, and tried to create this land bridge connecting Russia with the rest of these territories. And he wasn't wrong. You know, Russia did invade uh, coming north from Crimea and, and heading west from, from Russia through these territories. And I also believe that this would happen in a very similar way. And that's why I was in the eastern city of Krematorsk on February 24th when the first missiles came crashing down on the, the airfields there. And in Kiev, Zelensky's office, with the exception of a couple of people, did not believe that the Western warnings of a full-scale invasion, including an attempt on the capital, would happen. It just seems so outrageous at the moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think ultimately the Ukrainians were in, in some ways proven right. The Russians really bungled this invasion and they did a lot of things wrong. They made a lot of mistakes in those first hours and days, especially the ground forces that attempted to, to surround Kiev and tried to uh, essentially decapitate the government. Uh, you know, they were using maps that were more than 30 years old. They were running into roadblocks and, and bridges and dams that didn't exist in Soviet times. Uh, you know, they were just making one bad decision after another. You and your listeners will probably remember these long, snaking columns of military vehicles heading toward Kiev. And that yep. looks intimidating in a video and from the air. But from the ground, you know, the Ukrainian soldiers and volunteers who ran to defend the country uh, against these columns, you know, for them, these were easy targets. You know, they would take out, they would use American Javelin anti-tank missiles to take out the front vehicle, to take out a middle and an end vehicle, and then the rest were essentially just stuck. And it was a shooting gallery for, for them, you know. And so in some ways, the Ukrainian analysis was, was accurate in thinking that the Russians wouldn't be able to take Kiev. And, and also, I think one, one thing that's also important to note is that the Russians believed a lot of their own propaganda. And, and, and Vladimir Putin had a lot of yes-men around him who were saying when, when asked, you know, the Ukrainians want to be, quote-unquote, liberated from this, um, you know, brutal Zelensky regime. Yeah. Ethnic Russians and Russian speakers in the country are being persecuted on a daily basis. They're going to welcome you with open arms when you roll in. Mm-hmm. And so the Russians came in with three days' worth of food and water and their parade uniforms, thinking that they were going to celebrate... Uh, in, a, in a large military parade down Central Kroshatik Street and Independence Square in less than a week. And of course, that didn't happen. So let's just go back to Zelensky for a moment. I want to, uh, we'll come back to the, the details of the war and how it's played out. But you mentioned um, one of the pivotal moments when he decided that he was going to stay, that he was not going to flee, he was not going to follow the example of the uh, president of Afghanistan. And then he recorded that video which was the first of many of the videos. His ability as a communicator seems really crucial here, that he was able to mobilize world opinion in an incredible way that was not inevitable when you look back on it. And it's hard, well, you're, you're much more familiar with this. It's hard for me to imagine any other Ukrainian leader being able to mobilize the West to be able to have the kind of international sympathy or to use all the different tools of communication, including propaganda, to rally the world uh, to Ukraine's side and to tell that story. I mean, I don't know how involved he is as a military leader, but that seems to be his real decisive contribution. Is that a fair take? 
Absolutely. I think that's fair. He is in, in many ways, very much a, a military leader. And I have it from him and his, his office that he's a very, very hands-on leader. He likes to be involved mm-hmm. in every decision for better or worse. And, and there have certainly been times where he has overridden some of his generals to make a, a much more of a political decision. I think in staying to fight and defend in Bakhmut, for example, this really grinding war of attri- or battle of yeah. attrition, you know, that was very much a decision that he made. But he has this ability, because he's not a seasoned politician, to not really speak from a script, but to speak from the heart and and in a very and make these really emotional appeals that I think connect not only with with leadership in the West, but real, you know, ordinary citizens who then, you know, take to social media and say, we need to support the Ukrainians. Look what look what the Russians are doing over there. This is what the president is saying. These are the images that are coming out of the country. You know, his office is is filled with people who worked for his entertainment company. They're very quick to turn around, you know, these really slickly produced videos that are not the type of propaganda that we look at and say, oh, this is clearly, you know, just government messaging. They're very good at appealing to people's emotions and sensitivities and, and make this war, I think, in so many ways, one that is not being fought on these, um, you know, foreign battlefields, but feel like something that is, is actually really close to you. Let's go back to the beginning, because I think one of the things that comes through in your book is that Ukraine is much, much more complex than most of us could have imagined or that you, you could have imagined. So how did you end up in Ukraine of all places? Because you ended up there back in 2009 in Bakhmut. How did you end up in Bakhmut in 2009? And, and what was the city like back then? So I applied for the U.S. Peace Corps program in 2009, and they sent me to Ukraine in spring of 2010. So I, I arrived, uh, I think, on April 1st in 2010 in Kiev, and then after a couple of months of, of Russian language training and, and cultural education, I moved to Bakhmut, which at the time was called Artyomovsk. And, you know, I, I never set out to live and work in Ukraine. When the Peace Corps asked me where I would like to go, Mm-hmm. I said, you know, I'd really like to go someplace in Africa. It just seemed so fascinating to me. I had known some other acquaintances and, and, and family members who had served in Africa and, and South America. And I very much had those places in mind, you know, when, when applying for the Peace Corps. So when they came back to me and said, you know, we don't have any openings there in the next several months, you could wait another year to go, or we could send you to Eastern Europe. How about Ukraine? I said, sure, let's do it. And you know, without any familial connections, without any knowledge of the culture or the languages, I arrived in Bakhmut, the only American in this city of 70,000 people that was quaint, quiet, you know, very far from, from the capital of Kiev, also, you know, very far away from Moscow, but just a few hours from the Russian border. It was not the place that I originally wanted to go when I first found out that I was going to Ukraine. I I really hoped to to end up in in Western Ukraine, uh, where there are these beautiful Carpathian mountains. And I thought, you know, it, it could be great to get lost for a couple of years in this cottage in in the mountains in the forests. And I had you know an interest in Crimea as well, being by the sea and also having this beautiful landscape. Eastern Ukraine was very different, and mm-hmm. at first it looked really tough and it was sort of brutal. You know, this is a heavily industrialized region. The Soviets came in there and really built up factories and and mines. There's sort of a layer of coal dust across the entire eastern region because there are so many mines, both both legal mines and illegal mines, because in some mm. places you can actually just scrape the coal from the surface. 
that's how prevalent it is. But in Bakhmut, I found it was actually this, this sort of diamond in the coal dust. It was clean. It was, uh, the, the streets were lined with roses. There were be- these beautiful hmm. parks and um, a salt mine just up the road that largely provided for the community and, and thousands of jobs. There was also this champagne factory that Joseph Stalin had ordered to be created post-Second World War that also employed a lot of people. And I quickly fell into uh, you know, a routine within the community. I, I became you know, known by the local government there. I worked in schools. I became fast friends with a lot of people who had an interest in the West. But at that time, because the internet in 2010 wasn't as prevalent, really didn't have a clear picture of how we lived and who we were. And, and so for them, I was, you know, their sort of window to the West. And they were very much, you know, my, my local educators and fixers and, and friends. And those relationships and, and that experience uh, for two years of living there really formed the basis of my understanding for the country. And it's really when I understood that, you know, this isn't a country divided by East and West and Ukrainian speakers and Russian speakers. I was meeting and speaking with people who were speaking Russian, who were speaking Ukrainian, who were speaking a blend of the two called Sodashik, which made things a little bit tricky at first. Mm. You know, I met people of all various ethnicities from Central Asia, Eastern Europe. Um, There was a Greek community in Mariupol. Uh, So, you know, I found a place that was really deeply complex and fascinating, which is why after two years I decided to stay. You write in the book that people there were equally skeptical about both Kiev and, and Moscow, and they identified themselves as the people of the Donbass. And you write, uh, the Donbass, a vast, wild steppe land once controlled by Cossacks, had a long history of rebelling against rulers in both Moscow and Kiev. People here valued freedom and independence above all else. They didn't want anyone telling them what to do. So you mentioned that there's a mixture of Ukrainian speakers and Russian speakers, and, and I kind of want to just dig down into this a little bit. There's the mythology that that you know in eastern ukraine that there were these pro russian russian speaking you know pockets but but obviously it's just much much more complex than that yeah you know the russians will argue that you know ukraine's not really a place it's just sort of it's been russia for russian all along you really are russians you're not really a different people obviously the ukrainians disagree and the people of donbas are like a third way right i mean it's just like that's a mixture that's a mess down there yeah, I, well, Vladimir Putin has said explicitly that he doesn't believe Ukrainians are are a real people, that they are Russians who have lost their way, and that Ukraine isn't a, a real country, and it's never it's never been a, a nation. It is a place that was created by Lenin and the Soviet Union. And those things, of course, are are untrue. This is Russian propaganda and and the Kremlin's propaganda, and I think that is important to note because it's that propaganda and that messaging that penetrated deep into these Russian-speaking areas in eastern Ukraine and southern Ukraine and really, you know, got its claws into, you know, a large number of people there. And so when Russia invaded in 2014, that area, that's where they did find some sympathy. And, and we did see some Ukrainians who had been, you know, watching Russian television for years because, again, mm-hmm. it was, you know, this is an area that's that's very close to the Russian border and it felt... You know, I felt far from Kiev, and this was a place that often felt neglected by Kiev and didn't see a lot of the money that they were paying in taxes to the central government return to be uh, used to build their, their cities and infrastructure there. You know, that, that alienation 
was something that was exploited by the Kremlin in 2014. And so we saw several Ukrainians, thousands of Ukrainians who did take up arms to fight against their own country at that time. But, you know, that's, that is an example of, of the complexity, but it's also one of, you know, just how, how Russia's influence over decades had managed to influence these people and to get them to, to believe these messages that were, that were largely untrue, but had just, you know, just enough of a kernel of truth in there or foundation on which the Kremlin could build this argument to them. So I'm, I'm haunted by your description of living in Bakhmut and your references to Mariupol because now is there anything left? It's these towns have been reduced to to rubble. Some of the worst, most brutal fighting taking place in those cities. I just talk to me a little bit about how you feel about this. I mean, you you remember what the city was like back in 2010, and you know what it's like now. You know the people. Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking. Uh, I, I returned to Bakhmut several times over the past, you know, nine years of of Russia's war there. But in the first many years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it had been a city that largely avoided conflict and fighting. It was not smack on the front line before 2022. And what we saw from summer of 2022 till now still is this unbelievably brutal fighting. Russian airstrikes, heavy artillery duels, close quarters combat in city streets that used to be lined with roses and where you know children walked to school and where Ukraine's Olympians trained for track and field, where I walked through parks with my friends, you know, sipping coffee and watching people ride a Mm. Ferris wheel um, on on holidays. All of this has been completely erased, huge apartment complexes raised to the ground. It's really unfathomable. The last time I was there was toward the end of December. And each trip that I had made through the year, things got progressively worse the first time I, I arrived, I saw that the apartment where I had lived was was still intact, but the street had been badly damaged. The next time was autumn, and uh, I, I noticed that several more buildings and cafes that I used to, to to frequent and a school that I worked at had had been attacked and and were in bad shape. By December, the roads were completely chewed up by armored vehicles. There was hardly a moment uh, where ex- an explosion wasn't heard. Artillery shells were crashing down all over the place. I wasn't able to spend uh, many hours there. It was it was especially dangerous. And I interviewed these Ukrainian soldiers who were exhausted. They had you know covered in dirt. They were hungry. They were thirsty. They were cold because again this was December, and they described this hellish fighting at the front line where Russian forces were just sending waves of men toward them, trying to advance mere meters before being uh, cut down by Ukrainian fire, and then another wave of fighters being sent toward them. And I was just in shock of what this person was describing. Yeah, and he called it a meat grinder. And and as we spoke, Mm -hmm. I noticed that there were some some Ukrainian soldiers digging nearby. And we were standing in this square that used to be a location for city holidays or a meeting place where I would go and meet friends to later go out in the evening. And it had turned into a fortress. The city was becoming a fortress, and Ukrainians were digging a trench to prepare for Russians storming the very city center. And I noted to him how crazy that looked to me, to be digging a trench there. 
And I noted that, you know, I, I did see people digging here once before. Uh, when I lived here in 2011, there was um, an excavation underway and I had asked one of the diggers what they were doing. And he said, we're actually pulling up the bodies of German soldiers who had occupied uh, Artyomovsk, oh, really? which was what previously Bakhmut was called, um, during the Second World War. And we both just stood there in, in awe and, and all we could do was, was, was shake our head. Um, it was just this really surreal moment. But yes, the city has been completely razed to the ground, and unfortunately, many others have too. You know, there's a list of them now. Mariupol is is certainly one of the most well known, but I could go on and on because the Russians have really set their sights on on destroying cities. So the title of your book is "The War Came to Us." Where does that come from? Where does the phrase come from? Yeah, I, you know, I never set out to cover a war. I wasn't a war correspondent. I was someone who I think fell in love with Ukraine and wanted to stay because of a, a deep interest. Um, in the country and its people and its culture. And prior to the revolution in 2013 and 14 and the war in 2014, you know, I was reporting on the political scene and uh, geopolitics and Ukrainian people and culture. And I was fascinated by that. And and that was good enough for me. You know, I, I didn't go off looking to, to report in Iraq or Afghanistan, just like many Ukrainians, you know, did not seek out war. They did not provoke Russia. This is an unprovoked invasion of their country. And so, you know, the title is, you know, myself, Ukrainians were living in Ukraine, essentially going about our lives and business, right? I mean, I was, I was reporting as, as a journalist, they were working in tech or government or uh, education when Russia decided that, and, and Vladimir Putin decided that, you know, this country, this place is, is a place that belongs under our control. You know, we're going to use Ukraine to attack the Western world and what Vladimir Putin views as um, Western hegemony. And, you know, so the title really comes from this brutal, brutal war and invasion arriving without really being expected and totally unprovoked. So let's talk a little bit about the war, because you describe it as a complex war in a complex place. The Ukrainian military is, is fascinating because, as you describe it, it's a kind of a patchwork force. And, you know, it's been so creative and so impressive with what it's been able to do. I mean, they're using Czech equipment, Iraqi equipment, American equipment, British equipment. They've got instruction manuals in half a dozen languages. They're going through a thousand drones a day. They had a famous stockpile of weapons at the beginning of the war, but they're obviously very, very heavily reliant. So... What has to happen now? I mean, you you write that the war is going to drag on, you know, unless the West and, you know, the U.S. government in particular are willing to provide a lot more and a lot more quickly. So where do you think we are right now? Because there's that push-pull. We have done so much. The Ukrainians are constantly saying you need to do more. It has to be faster. So give me your thoughts about the kind of the, what I see is the kind of the tentative slow walk of the Biden administration that wants to give them sort of enough, but maybe not enough to win the war. Where are we at now? I'll paraphrase uh, the Ukrainian foreign minister, who's a longtime acquaintance of mine. When, when I met him recently, what he told me when we were speaking about Western assistance and what they need and the pace of it over the past year and a half is, you know, we're tired of asking and being told no. And then asking a second time months later and being told maybe. And then knowing that when we ask a third time, months later, long after we needed this piece of equipment, finally, yes. Mm -hmm. If they would have just said yes from the start and put the process in place of delivering it, we could have done so much more early on. And we might not be in this position we are now, which is 
I think, a brutal grinding war of attrition and this really crucial moment where if more assistance isn't provided, we risk seeing Ukraine and Russia's war against it slip into a frozen conflict. And that would allow Russia to really, uh, even more than they have in in recent months, solidify their front line and their defenses, take even a stronger hold on these occupied territories in the east and the south of the country. And also, you know, we'll we'll be coming up against a presidential campaign in the United States where Ukraine, of course, yeah, where where Ukraine uh, risks becoming a, a political issue. And the Ukrainians do not want to see that happen because, you know, traditionally Ukraine has seen bipartisan support in the United States and uh, you know, with the candidates who are who are running, particularly President Donald Trump, mm-hmm. you know, the Ukrainians are very skeptical of of him and worried about the amount of support. Justifiably so, right, right, because you know they don't want a replay of 2019 when then President Trump, you know, dangled uh, military aid over the head of Zelensky, um, asking him to do him political favors, and so there there is this concern that you know if the Ukrainians do not get a lot more a lot sooner, this could you know, slip in again into a frozen conflict. And, you know, they just don't have the capacity right now to produce enough shells and weaponry on their own. They're heavily reliant on the West. And Russia, meanwhile, has has ramped up its production. It's definitely got a deeper bench. You know, there is three times, if not four times, the amount of people in Russia. If Vladimir Putin wanted to call up a mobilization or send more troops in, he would likely be able to do that. And, you know, he has shown no indication of stopping until he achieves his goals of seeing Ukraine broken apart. And, and so that's what we're worried about now. Yeah. What is your sense about the status of the long-awaited counteroffensive? We don't hear a lot about it. It appears to be going slower. There are occasional uh, reports of, of breakthroughs. You're watching this much more closely. Has the counteroffensive been a disappointment or were our expectations excessive? The expectations were excessive. You know, the Ukrainians were expected to carry out, you know, almost the impossible against the second largest and most powerful military in the world, supposedly, right? They were told that they would need to conduct a a very complex combined military forces operation with artillery and infantry and armored vehicles and without air support. You know, the Ukrainian air force is not nearly as big as Russia's. They do not have air superiority in their country. And the West has, and the United States in particular, wanted Ukraine to conduct an operation in this manner, thinking that it could provide its best opportunity to rust back occupied territory. Um, But it's an operation that the United States itself would never conduct without Mm. air superiority. And the counteroffensive did get off to a rough start. The Ukrainians lost a lot of uh, Western-provided military vehicles. They've lost hundreds, if not thousands, of soldiers in the past two and a half months since the start of this counteroffensive. They've committed a lot of their Western-trained and very experienced soldiers. They're having to use reserves at the moment, and they're still not having a lot of success on the battlefield. That's largely also due to the fact that Russia had months to prepare its own defenses for this counteroffensive. You know, this was a, a counteroffensive that everybody knew was coming, coming, right? It was it was really well telegraphed. The Ukrainians had no choice but to launch a counteroffensive at some point. So the Russians spent months digging trenches, mining fields. The country is now the most mined place in the world because the Russians are spreading so many mines. Mm. I was down on the front lines just a couple of weeks ago. And soldiers were telling me that they would come across minefields that were so dense that within uh, like 
one or two square meters, they would find uh, as many as five mines at a time. Mm. I think that the counteroffensive, you know, it, it has not gone the way the Ukrainians have wanted, of course. I don't think that they have much of a choice other than to continue pounding away at Russian front lines and, and trying to achieve a breakthrough. Right now, it does look as though, you know, they are going to continue to struggle to do that. Um, they're expending a huge amount of weaponry and ammunition at the moment, but they still have forces that they haven't yet committed. So I wouldn't count the Ukrainians out. Around many turns, we've seen the Ukrainians outperform our expectations, and they do have this really uncanny ability to overperform and to surprise us. And so I, I think that you know we should continue supporting them and certainly not count this counteroffensive out yet. You put your finger on it, though, that uh, offensives like this usually rely on air support. And we would never try an, a, an attack like this without air superiority and air support. And, and that has been lacking. Of course, the Ukrainians have been saying this for months. Give us the air support. And apparently that's going to happen. But it's been delayed and it's been slow. The book is The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. Christopher Miller is correspondent for the Financial Times based in Ukraine, who has been he's been reporting on the country for more than a decade. It is an extraordinary piece of work. Congratulations, Christopher. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to speak with you. And thank you all for listening to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper and engineered and edited by Jason Brown.